following audio is from a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. This is the word of the Lord. When I look out this morning, I see a bunch of rebels. I do. I, do you realize that? Coming together this morning um, to worship, I see a bunch of rebels. And it may not be a rebel in the way that you might naturally think about, right? When we think about rebels, rebels we think about rule breakers, people who are, who are coloring outside of the lines, the angsty, tattooed, nonconformist who is always ruffling feathers and insists on making a scene. Now, when I look out, that's not necessarily what I see, although I do think we are a pretty well-tattooed bunch out here. Every time we come together on Sunday mornings, every time we unite our voice in song together, singing praises to God, we are rebelling. Not against God, but we're rebelling against the culture. We're rebelling against ourselves. You see, culture is constantly trying to get us to prove ourselves, to reinvent ourselves, to to assert our independence and show how we're sufficient in ourselves. Culture tells us to, to question everything that orthodoxy offers, to push back against authority, do it your own way, pave your own road. And the promise, which is actually an empty promise, that culture offers is you do this, then you'll be free. Then you'll be liberated. Then, then, you'll, then you'll know who you finally are. But listen, if everybody in society is living this way, if everybody in society is pushing against orthodoxy, if everybody is paving their own way, pushing against authority, is that really rebellion anymore? If everybody's doing that, is that really rebellion or is that just the new norm? The way that I see it, worshiping Jesus is the only true rebellion because it's rebelling against rebellion. Worshiping Jesus pushes against the idea of self-sufficiency. It says we need a savior. It says, I can't do it my way. I tried my way. It didn't work. It's saying that I've, I've exerted my energies and I've come to the end of myself and I'm still left wanting. But when we worship Jesus, we're saying, I found what my heart desires. In him, I've found my identity. I found my value, my purpose, my joy, my strength, my comfort, all these things that we're looking for, all the things we're craving, we find in Jesus. And so I look out, I see a bunch of rebels. It's a good thing. And as we profess the Apostles' Creed together like we did this morning, I think that is the exclamation point on our rebellion. 
We, we've been, we just started a sermon series as we're working our way through the Apostles' Creed. And what the Apostles' Creed is, if you weren't here last week, it's just this short, concise summary of the basic tenets of Christian faith. Every Christian believes more than the Apostles' Creed, but no Christian believes less than the Apostles' Creed. And so in a sense, we are claiming orthodoxy. We're claiming what the scriptures actually teach about who God is, that he's a a Trinitarian God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's the way the, 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 the Apostles' Creed is broken down in those three sections. So we're we're reclaiming orthodoxy as we profess the Apostles' Creed together. Now Peter Kreeft, he says, in an age that has thrown off all tradition, the only rebellion possible is orthodoxy. The only rebellion possible is to believe what is actually laid out about who God is in, in Scripture. To, to embrace what the scriptures teach. And so what I wanna show you today as we go through the first sentence, the first complete sentence, last week we only got into the first two words of I believe, we're gonna go in a little bit deeper today. I wanna show you how rebellious that first sentence of the Apostles' Creed really is. And as we rebel, have gospel rebellion, what I think we'll find is that this gives us what we're longing for deep in our hearts. Now, one goal that I have in this Apostles' Creed series is to show you, first of all, that that the Christian faith has a robust theology. This is not watered-down ideas. This is robust, a profession of faith. We can can literally take uh, dozens of weeks. We're only taking 12 weeks to go through this series, but we could take hundreds of weeks to unpack what we can recite in less than 30 seconds. In fact, the first line itself to say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I think that this could be thousands. Literally, there have been thousands of sermons written just about who God is. And so in addition to the robustness of our theology, I wanna show you that as we profess this, this is not just theology for theology's sake. We're not just reciting doctrine for the sake of doctrine. Because theology isn't theoretical. Good theology is practical theology. Good theology works itself out in the everyday, ordinary patterns and rhythms and assumptions and beliefs of life so that there's not one inch of our life that's unaffected by our theology. See, that, that's what good theology looks like. It's, it's being fleshed out. Now, a place where we see this really, really happening is in what we had read today that Leah read for us from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter eight. It's sort of a unique scenario, uh, but, it, but it's a real scenario that the Apostle Paul and the, the church in Corinth faced in the first century. They, they were dealing with this issue surrounding uh, food being sacrificed to idols. This is a pretty contextual situation. I don't know if you're gonna really relate to this. I guess it depends on what kind of parties you go to. I just don't really know. But the theology that Paul lays out here that's directly applicable to the the Corinthians here in the first century actually has principles that picks up and carries over into the 21st century and meets us in some of of the most, Christianity's most challenging ideas. And it works itself out in these daily implications. 
So this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at this first century church in Corinth and see what Paul has to say. Now, as we jump in here, I got a little bit of context. In the first century, there was a lot of plural, pluralism. It was polytheistic. There was the belief, the cultural assumption that there were many different gods. In fact, Corinth was sort of the epicenter. They were known for uh, three main Greek gods that sort of like, you know, that, that, that's what their culture was embedded in. Um, Aphrodite was one of them, Poseidon, they were a coastal uh, city, and then uh, Detmer was another Greek god that they all worshipped. They, they would make sacrifices, there were temples devoted to them. The culture was devoted to these gods. And so when Paul is talking about idols, he's talking about these gods, but, but specifically how they're represented by figurines, um, whether it be stone or wood or, or clay that's molded or, or carved to represent these gods, and people would worship them. They, they would worship these idols, they sacrifice to these idols. This was sort of the cultural norm across the board. Now, Romans 1 actually provides some insight, like why is this? Where did, where did this idea of multiple gods come from? Romans 1 tells us that in human rebellion, as we rebelled against God, we traded worship of the true God for worship of lesser things, things that were created in the image of man, in the image of, of birds and creatures. And so here we see the rise of manufactured religions, these mythologies that came up. People were trying to make sense of the world by dismissing the one true God who has revealed himself to us through creation and in his word. But Paul, in verse four, seeing the rebellion of the culture as they worship lesser gods, Paul says, listen, we as Christians are rebelling against their rebellion. He says, therefore, as to the eating of foods offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. See, for there, although there, are, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, it's literally in air quotes, and many lords, yet there is one God. Now Paul is stepping on people's toes. In in a pluralistic society where everybody's worshiping a bunch of different gods, Paul says, no, 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 no. There's, There's one God. All of the other gods have no real existence. They're 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 kind of, they're a hoax, they're, they're phony, they're not real, there's no real substance behind them. And so he says, there is no God but one. It's a singular, there's, there's one God, he's a monotheist. Now when he says there is no God but one, th- this isn't just saying, like, speaking about a, a number, this is actually referring back to the God of the Old Testament who in Deuteronomy 6, the, the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. He, he's rooting the Christian church back to the historical God who had revealed himself to the fathers of the faith, to Abraham, Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to David. He's rooting Christians in this historical God. But then he does something that it would be really controversial, especially with, 
with Jewish faith. Because it, we can say, as Christians, we go back and we validate the Old Testament. The Old Testament gives us a, a finger pointing forward to who the Christ is. And, and the New Testament helps us go back and reinterpret the Old Testament and make sense of it. And so there's a lot of parallels between Christianity and Judaism, especially when we're holding on to the Old Testament together. But what Paul does in verse six is shocking because he says there is one God, the Father, from who are all things and for whom we exist. The Jews would say absolutely, that's absolutely true. But then he says, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now this is pretty profound. What, what, what Paul is doing is saying there, there's one God. But then he takes God the Father and, and, and Christ the Son and he links them up giving them the same attributes from whom th- all things are, for whom all things exist. He's not saying there's two gods now, but what he's doing is pointing to the reality that God who has revealed himself to us is a Trinitarian God. He's showing us the first two members of the Holy Trinity, that God the Father Christ the Son, and of course, the Holy Spirit. This would have been really troublesome for the Jews of that day and points to the uniqueness of the Christian profession. Now, when we profess this in the Apostles' Creed, when we say, I believe in God the Father, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth, we are making the same exclusive claims as the Apostle Paul, and it's just as offensive today as it would have been then. Because we're saying there's one true God who's been revealed in three persons, and all of the other gods that aren't that are false gods. See, this ruffles the feathers of our post-Christian culture. This goes against the grain of the coexist era that we find ourselves in. This era where we see a bunch of different religions and and there's this idea, it's sort of a a relativist idea that all religions go the same direction. All, All religions have the same ending point. But Christianity says there's only one way to the Father. It's through Jesus Christ, the Son. See, this ruffles the feathers of people. Look at us and say, you know, that, that's really bigoted to say, how can you say all these other religions are made up? They're phony. That's very narrow-minded of you Christians. That's offensive. How dare you make such a claim? That's, that's the reality of the atmosphere that we find ourselves in. We're, we're no longer in a Christendom culture. For, for many decades before, we may have ex- enjoyed some of that, that privilege of the Christians sort of being the dominant voice in culture, that, that there was this sort of idea widespread culturally that there is one God. But now, we find ourselves in a, a post-Christian society. In fact, there's a study that came out just this year um, or actually earlier this summer, in June, Barna do, does a lot of research and, and studies about Christian life and, and how, what the, the landscape of Christian belief looks like these days. And on the list of the most post-Christian cities in the country, you wanna know where the Quad Cities falls? Now, when you think about post-Christian cities, I mean, I think about Seattle, I think about San Francisco, New York, those big big cities that sort of liberal tint. 
But the Quad Cities falls at number 15, above San Francisco, above Seattle. Now, what, now what does it mean to be in a post-Christian society? It means that, that the influence of Christianity has worn away, that there are more people in our city today where the church or any sort of religion does not influence them at all. 50% of people, 52% of people in our city have no sort of religious bandwidth, let alone Christian bandwidth. And so it makes sense that, that as Christians, if we're saying Jesus is Lord, there is one God that, that the culture would push back and say, how dare you? And so it's our profession to say that I believe in the one true God, not a made-up God, not, a, not an idol, not a God of our own imagination and construct, but the one true God who has revealed himself to us in Scripture as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. To make that profession makes us rebels. And like I said, as we make this profession, we're, we're, our, our assertion our faith is based upon scripture and how God has revealed himself to us throughout time and space, through history. Now when you open up the Bible, you open up the first page of the Bible, right away, scripture is communicating something to us about God. Scripture wants us to know right off the bat that God is the creator. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. And Paul asserts the same thing in verse six. He says, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. See, this is what we echo in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Now listen, can you feel the rebellion of our orthodoxy intensifying? Like step foot into a grade school, open up a science textbook. When it's explaining the, the origin of the world, you're more likely to read about a Big Bang Theory than you are about an uncreated creator. See, more and more our culture, as it's plural, pluralistic, as it's relativistic, it's also naturalistic. Culture has this idea that, that science is king, that everything has to be explained by what's material, that there, there's really no room for spirit or supernatural or spiritual talk, right? Because how can you quantify that? How do you make sense? How do you measure that? So instead, it provides this narrative about everything came out of some sort of explosion that somehow was initiated. Now, I think an, an unpowered Big Bang, so a, a bang that happens out of nowhere is less likely than if you were to take a bunch of watch parts Right, some, some gears, some screws, throw it into a shoebox and, and shake it up and at the end of shaking it up, regardless of how long you shake it up, that you open the box and suddenly somehow there's a, a watch that has been perfectly assembled that works extraordinarily. Right, it, 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 
It's unlikely, and to me, I look at that, I think, to, to think this about the created world, that it came just from some sort of explosion by chance, it seems that it would take a lot of faith to believe such a thing. Let alone, how does the box shake, shake itself? Now, don't hear me wrong. Christians are not anti-science. We look at the world, it's God's creation, it's God's created word. We look at the scriptures, God's spoken word, and we believe that God is truth, that God cannot contradict himself. So when we look at the word of God and we look at God's creation, they are not at odds with one another. And so Christians can validate and appreciate science to say that Christianity and and science are opposites. That's a false dichotomy. That's a narrative of culture and not of Christian faith. But when Christians say we believe in God the creator, what we're saying is we believe in an open system. In the naturalistic world, we're saying, the culture is saying it's a closed system, that everything that we see before us is material, that we, that we can make sense of everything by what's in front of us. Christians say, no, no, no we, we can't do that. We look at this world and we see how, how beautifully it was made, the complexity of it, and it, there had to be some sort of artist, there had to be some, 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 some sort of designer, some creator. And so we say that this is an open system, that someone outside uh, of the created world worked to create. Which means we believe there's more to creation than the material world. So we profess, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And we can say heaven as sort of a geographic thing, like up in the sky, but what we are really saying is I believe in the spiritual and the material. Because we have to realize that there's more to this world than just the material, right? Otherwise, how do you make sense of emotions? How do you make sense of love or morals or cultural rules or even meaning? All of those things are non-material. And so if you were to go down the depressing road of Darwin and, and Dawkins and follow this naturalistic worldview that culture insists up, upon. This worldview is bleak. Because if life begins in the material world and not with God, then this whole world is all about chance. It, it's, all, it's all one big beautiful accident, if you can even ascribe beauty to something that is an accident. It's a bunch of random molecules moving through untamed forces of nature. And if you you follow out that, that thought to the end of its logic, you'll find yourself either right next to or either in the nihilist camp, right? There's no meaning. Life is meaningless. Everything is amoral. It's a dog eat dog world, survival of the fittest. Just try to get out on top. Now that, that, that to me, it seems like a really depressing world to live in. And that would explain why maybe the most devoted of, of the naturalist worldview, Nietzsche, would, would drive himself crazy. But if we believe God created the world like scripture repeatedly tells us, I mean repeatedly, Genesis, then Psalms, then Job, then Proverbs, I mean just go down the line, go to the New Testament, over and over, Colossians. 
then we can see that life has meaning, life has purpose. In fact, Paul says in verse six that all things exist for him. That there's a purpose devoted for God that means God created all things for his purpose and his purpose is to display his glory. And we sang about this. You're beautiful. I see your beauty in the sunrise and the sunset. I see it in nature. I see it. God created things to display his glory and to reveal his purpose. That means that our lives and the cosmos, as Calvin says, are the feeder of God's glory. Everything is reflecting God's beauty. So not only do we see that God, as creator, provides meaning to life, but seeing God as creator also unpacks a lot about him. It tells us a few things about him. First of all, that God's eternal, that he is the uncreated creator, that he exists before time and space existed. That God is infinite. Because he's not bound by time or space, he he can do anything he wants. He's independent, he doesn't rely upon creation. God didn't create the world to satisfy some empty hole in his heart. God did it out of an overflow of his own gladness in himself. He doesn't rely on creation. God is creative. Now, I love this because this gives validation to like artists and poets, musicians, people who, unless you're making it big and creating like a lot of cultural, you know, waves, you're not very well appreciated. But here we see God is creative. We look out in creation, we see the variety of plants and animals, the terrain. And we see God is omnipotent. He's full of power. He literally speaks, and at his speaking, things come into existence. Nobody else has that kind of power. And we acknowledge these attributes, and then some, in the Apostles' Creed, when we say, we believe in God the Father Almighty. Al Mohler says, this word represents all of God's attributes, the fullness of his perfections, that he's all-knowing, he's loving, he's steadfast and faithful, his immutable will, he's righteous, he's holy, that God is good. He possesses the fullness of perfection and infinite majesty, therefore God in his almighty nature, and what that represents is worthy of worship. That our purpose here on earth to reflect his glory, to sing his praises, not just with our mouths, but with our lives, to reflect this glory is a worthy cause, deeply satisfying work for us. I think when we have this big picture about who God is, this, this, that he's almighty, this big and powerful, robust God, it's easy for us to sort of think, man, if this is who God is, if he's really this big, if he's really this great, I'm sure he's got bigger things to worry about than me. That God's gotta keep the world spinning, right? He's gotta keep sustaining all of life. I think that's how a lot of people feel. They agree in some sense that God, sure, yeah, he's the creator. He's almighty, but then they think he's off running the universe in some distant corner in heaven. But the last piece that we're gonna look at in the, in the Apostles' Creed today and what verse six shows us is when we look at God, he has revealed himself to us as Father. God, the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. 
Karl, Karl Barth says, the father, when we're addressing God, isn't a surname. It isn't some sort of formal title. What this is, it, it indicates a personal relationship, a personal name for us to know him by. And in some places in scripture, it, it gets more informal than the word father. We see the word Abba, he, Hebrew word that gets used over and over. It's like this, it'd be the equivalent in English of like daddy, papa. Like this term of endearment, of deep relationship and connectivity. See, what, what scripture is showing us is that God is the archetypal father, that, that fatherhood itself gets his meaning, gets its meaning from God. Now, I realize that for some of us in the room, that seeing God as father can be difficult. Like, some of us have had crummy dads. And we can admit that without slandering them and say, man, they, they just, they tried their best, but they, they, fall, they fell short. And because of the wounds that we've experienced from our earthly fathers, there, there's, this, there's wounds, there's a void in our heart. Maybe it's that you felt that you always had to strive for your dad's attention. You're like, hey, dad, look at me. Hey, hey, do you, do you see that I'm here? or fighting for his affection and affirmation. Maybe it's this craving of, man, I just, wanna, I just wanna belong. I just wanna feel the embrace of my dad. Now maybe your dad was emotionally distant or, or, or abusive. Maybe he, he used his power, his authority in your life in a manipulative or authoritarian way, aloof, he's disconnected. And even, listen, even with a good dad, even with a dad who does a good job of reflecting the beauty and the glory of God our Father in, in this earthly sense and in an imperfect sense, that there's still a way that we can experience some of these wounds, some of this dysfunction. I mean, just this week, one of the things that our family loves to do every summer is go to Iowa State Fair. I'm an Iowa boy, I grew up in 4-H, I love the county fair, I love the state fair. It's just one of those things that we love to do. And so it's a day that I really look forward to. There's a lot to do, there's a lot of fun stuff to see, uh, and in a sense, I'll always be an Iowa boy. I don't know what the Illinois State Fair is like. I, I probably will never find out because I'm gonna be devoted forever to the Iowa State Fair. And so to me, I, I'm going and I've got like all this anticipation about this day at the fair and it's gonna be great. And I've got two kids in the back who are just whining the whole day. <laughs> I'll paint your face. Okay, cool. I, I mean, I'll get you a corn dog, I'll get you this, I'll get you a ride, I'll, you know, all these fun things. Not one time did I hear a thank you. And I'm just, on the way home, like, we left early. I usually like to make like a 12-hour day of this whole thing. It's a lot of fun. I'm telling you, you should go sometime. And then we cut it short, like 3 o'clock. I'm like, I'm tired of these kids. I was sick, too, so that's part of it. Tired of these kids. They're ungrateful. We're just going to go home. And I'm at the end of my fuse, and I like to think I'm a pretty good dad. And the whole way, I'm just griping at him. Like, how, you're so ungrateful. I didn't hear one thank you this whole time. My patience had worn thin. I'm like, in that moment, I'm not reflecting the goodness of God, my Father. And these kids are gonna have these wounds forever. Oh, that one time my dad took me to the state fair and just berated us the whole way home. <laughs> See, even with a good dad, you can experience some dysfunction. And what happens, if these wounds don't get addressed, it will cause us to live an impaired life. And, and this can unfold in a couple of ways. First of all, we see the dysfunction of our dad and we just, 
we adopt it as our own. We become like him. Another way is we experience maybe the hurt from our dads, and instead of dealing with it, we just sort of push ourselves away from everyone. Like if, if we're supposed to have this deep connected relationship with our earthly fathers, we don't find it, then who can we find that connection with? And so we distance ourselves emotionally, relationally, we shut down, we become despondent, we close ourselves off. Or in other ways, we, we try to replace him. We try to find something or someone else to give us what we didn't get from our own dads. Whether that's affirmation or love or attention. We turn to, to substances. We turn to booze. We, we drown ourselves out with entertainment or, or we focus on our careers and say, hey, as soon as I, I hit this place of success, this benchmark, then my dad's gonna look at me and say, oh, wow, well done. We can, we can make it about our work. We can give our, ourselves into the arms of other lovers. We can make it about money. Trying to find those things, trying to fill the void that we have in our hearts that we experience from our dad. And what happens is that if we don't address these wounds, it will profoundly affect the way that we see God as our own Heavenly Father. We start to project the qualities of our earthly dad onto our Heavenly Father, but, but God isn't like your earthly dad. In some ways, yes. But God, our Heavenly Father, is perfect. But we don't see that. We say, you know, if, if God is like my dad, man, I don't want anything to do with him. I'm better off without that relationship. I'd rather just push away. I'd rather rebel. And so we start to have this narrative in our own life that's like the prodigal son that we see in Luke chapter 15. This, this prodigal child who, who understands what dad wants, like there's some sort of relationship there, but still pushes away and says, I don't want anything to do with that. I want to create my own path. I have no interest in God my father. And so instead of living like children, we start living like rebels. We, we fight against God. Now this is, the, this is the path that the culture is begging us to go down. Like, pave your own way. Find out who, you don't need your dad to tell you who you are. You don't need your dad for a fact. Go, go find it, go create it. Go create your own image, your own self. But when people do this, when we run away from God, our Heavenly Father, we miss out on a deep, satisfying relationship that's meant to heal all of the wounds of our earthly fathers. Now, I gotta say this because I think that there are people who have been in church their whole life that have this language about God as their heavenly father. And they still miss out on this. They have this language, but they don't actually experience what it means to have this communion, to have this relationship with God. And instead, they look at God as more this cranky boss who they're working hard to impress. This, this guy up in the sky who's got his arms crossed and is sort of just waiting to be impressed, waiting to be won over. Now Romans 8, when Paul's talking to the Romans, he addresses this, this mindset as, he says this is the spirit of slavery. It's motivated by fear, it's performance driven, but there's a difference between living like that and like living as a true son, as a true child. 
of God. One of the curriculums that we use in our missional communities, I got some slides here if you guys are ready for me, um, that, that we use to help sort of make the distinction of how do I know if I'm living like a true child of God? How do, how do I know if I'm living like a slave or a son or a daughter? You can ask yourself this question, these questions. Do I lack a vital daily intimacy with God? Do, do I feel spiritually discouraged and defeated? Do I tend to be motivated by obligation and duty instead of love? Do you frequently compare yourself with others? Do you lack confidence when approaching God in prayer and worship? Do you feel powerless to defeat the flesh? And I would even say like, when you sin, do you run and hide like your first father Adam? Or do you run toward God in repentance and faith? See, if, if you answer yes to that, it's likely that you have a slave mentality. You're driven by fear and not relationship. But on the other end, if you can answer yes to this, it, it, it's as if you're functioning as a son. You, you're actually living out what you believe. Your, your, your profession has flesh on it. Do you enjoy real daily communion with God? And not just like reading through the Bible, but, but experiencing the presence of the Lord in his word. Do you live in forgiveness and freedom, knowing that you've been liberated from your sin? Do you experience contentment and happiness in Christ? Do you have the ability to confess your faults and admit your weaknesses? You manifest a deep reliance upon the Holy Spirit. Or do you have growing victory over sin and the flesh? You see, these are markers of us actually living out our profession that God is our Father, to have that real relationship with God. But listen, not everyone is a child of God by default. In fact, nobody is a child of God by default. We have been born into sin, therefore we're told that we are children of wrath. We've been orphaned by sin. Our choice to rebel against God, to, to take life our own direction. We've all pushed away from God, but here's the good news that God has sent Jesus into this world to draw us near to him. When we gave God the stiff arm, or maybe the middle finger, God says, no, no, my love is for you is so strong that I'm actually gonna pursue you through thick and thin. You see, and we see in Jesus, he's the true son who never once pushed away from God. He never once insisted upon doing his own thing. He said, everything that I do is from God. He's telling me what to say, what to do. He's trusting, he's had this vital connection with God, his father, and he carried out his will even when it meant that Jesus would go to the cross, that he would die for the rebellion of sinners like you and me. And it's by God's might, God's power, the almighty God who sent him to the cross, was put in the grave, and three days later was raised from the dead. By God's power, we would be forgiven and restored to now have a vibrant relationship with God our Heavenly Father. In fact, theologically speaking, what's happening here is for those who have embraced Jesus Christ in faith, who have trusted in him for salvation, scripture tells us that we have been adopted. We were once children of wrath, now we are children of God. Romans 8 says that we now have the spirit of adoption that cries, Abba, Father. 
Do you have that, relation, that type of relationship with God? When you look at God, do you see him as your father? See, this is what Jesus is offering us in the gospel. In fact, the highest privilege, this is what D.A. Carson says, the highest privilege that Christians have is to call God Father. It's a gift. It's saying that we've been made a new creation. See, here's the power of God, that he would recreate us. That we're a new creation. The power of God is demonstrated in the victory over sin and death. And here we find the embrace that we're all longing for. Here we find the purpose that we were made to live into, to devote our lives to, to reflect God's glory, to know that we are affirmed, we're validated, that we are the apple of God's eye. Let that blow your mind. That we are cherished and loved and embraced all because of the work of Jesus. And when we believe that, I mean really believe that, we talked about that last week, what belief is, to, to ascent, it's like intellectual ascent, to, be, to know some, some facts, to have some sort of knowledge, to have some sort of relationship, some trust and de- dependence, but also the ability to, our, our responsibility to live into that to take decisive action towards it. That when we realize and embrace God as Father, when we believe this, our life will look like that second slide. When our theology gets fleshed out, our theology becomes not just intellectual, but experiential. To experience God as Father. Now friends, this is the ultimate rebellion of orthodoxy. God is my father. God is, God is almighty. He is the creator. He is the one true God. Now listen, as we navigate our way, as I'm wrapping up here, as we navigate our way through culture and we, we hold this, if you believe this, if you can actually affirm with us as we profess our faith together every Sunday morning, culture is gonna tell you, you know, that's, that's good for you. I'm glad that you've come to that for you, but why don't you go ahead and keep that to yourself? Like, let's just not talk about it. Keep, keep that hush-hush. But if you really believe that God is your perfect heavenly father, that he's the almighty creator, that God is in the business of adding to his family, that anyone who believes can get in on this. Anybody who turns to Jesus and places their faith on him are now part of the family of God. Then you're going to talk about this. You're going to share the good news with people, that deep longing that you have in your heart, the desire for purpose and meaning, the desire you have to be embraced and to find value, to be affirmed. You're gonna look at people in our culture, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, your friends, your family who don't yet know Jesus, who you know are struggling with some of these things on a deep, profound level. You are gonna wanna give them the good news that you have found in Jesus. You're gonna help them. You wanna help them to come to know who God is, and so you're gonna talk about God. And so church, let us never grow weary of rebelling against the culture. Let us not for one minute just step back, you know, I just, just need to let up a little bit. By God's greatest grace, let us, let us press into our profession and ashamedly profess, I believe in God the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth, and let us together live out our gospel rebellion as members of the family of God. To 
the glory of God, now and forever. Amen. Father, we thank you. What a sentence that we have in the Apostles' Creed. What, what a profession. Thank you, God, that we were undeserving. We did nothing to earn your fathership. And you have bestowed grace upon grace upon us. This meal that we come to right now is a reminder of that. It, it, it's, like, it's a family reunion of sorts. That we come to this table and our invitation is based solely upon the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We did nothing to merit this, nothing to earn it. And yet we have your undying love, your steadfast faithfulness. God, and this is a meal that nourishes us to rebel against rebellion, to fight the good fight of faith and to hold fast to our God. We thank you for this meal. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.